This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Can the lessons of history help us understand Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine? I talk with distinguished historian Margaret McMillan and a young artist in crisis and a young country at war. A new book tells the story of Leonard Cohen's musical tour of the front to entertain Israeli soldiers during the Yom Kippur War. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A big shakeup in Ontario's long-term care sector. Chartwell Retirement Residences has signed a deal to sell 16 long-term care homes, as well as its management platform and another home under development to Age Care Health Services Incorporated and Axiom Infrastructure, Inc. The deal values each bed at $160,000, and the company says the total value is $446.5 million with net proceeds expected to be about $277 million. Insiders say the sale is part of Chartwell's plan to focus on its lucrative growing retirement business, which is governed by different rules than nursing homes. Some analysts believe this will lead to more consolidation in for-profit long-term care. Quebecers who turn 75 will no longer be required to pass a visual or medical exam to keep their driver's license. The province says the requirement will only be necessary for those who turn 80, in line with the rules here in Ontario. 75-year-olds will only have to self-declare that they're able to drive. Quebec's transport minister says the change reduces the administrative burden on the province's health care system. Your sense of direction is shaped by where you grew up, and researchers say new findings could one day lead to better tests for early dementia. Scientists at University College London found that people who grew up in predictable grid-like cities, like Chicago or New York, seem to struggle to navigate as easily as those who come from more rural areas. This suggests that people's childhood surroundings influence not only their health and well-being, but also their ability to get around later in life. They concluded that much like language, navigation is a skill that appears to be most malleable when people's brains are developing. An icon of Canadian surgery, Dr. Bernard Langer, has died from a stroke at 89. He was a pioneer in liver, biliary, and pancreatic surgery, having performed Toronto's first liver transplant at University Health Network in 1986. He was chair of the University of Toronto's Department of Surgery and was also a committed 
educator. As president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgery, he launched the Clinician Investigator Program to teach a new generation of physician investigators. He was an artist crafting beautiful stained glass creations. In his spare time, he was a loyal follower of the Blue Jays. He is survived by his wife, four children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Can the lessons of history help us make sense of the war on Ukraine? What's the interplay of geopolitics and the emergence of a single galvanizing figure like Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky? I turn to eminent historian Margaret McMillan, former warden and professor at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford. In a way, what's happening in Ukraine reminds me of both world wars and how they started. First World War, partly because those making the decisions miscalculated what their opponents were going to do. And I think Putin, it is now absolutely clear, didn't think Ukraine would resist, thought it would be a victory parade pretty much straight down to Kiev and and Ukraine would fall into Russian hands. But it reminds me also of the start of the Second World War, where Hitler had a project. He had a project to dominate Europe. He had a project to make the Aryan race supreme. I mean, he was deeply affected by his own ideology and his own views of of, of the difference between the races. And I think we're seeing this with Putin as well. And I think he is convinced that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, that Ukraine should not be separate, that Ukraine is spiritually and geographically united to Russia. And I think he's persuaded himself that, you know, again, that that Ukrainians would, would see it this way. And so I do think the ideology is very important. I mean, Hitler started the Second World War out of ideology, and I think Putin started this out of his own ultra-nationalist views. The Second World War started when Hitler invaded Poland, and here is Putin invading Ukraine. And doing it very much in the same style. I mean, what Hitler did was create incidents along the border with Poland, accusing the Poles of of planning to kill Germans and attack Germans, and in fact had a a German radio station just over the border in Germany attacked by people he said were Poles, and of course they weren't. They were people who'd been dressed in Polish uniforms and left there for dead. And Putin's done very much the same. I mean, he's claiming to be the innocent victim, much as Hitler was claiming to be the innocent victim, and attacked Ukraine, he said, to, because Ukraine was threatening Russia. Ukraine was threatening Russians in, inside Ukraine. It was dominated by you know, drag, drag addict Nazis. I mean, all these sorts of stories. And I think that's the one, you know, that, that is very much the, the, the method of, of both men. They create the pretext for war um, and then portray themselves as the innocent victims. On the other side of the information war, We have Volodymyr Zelensky. He's an actor and a producer. He's galvanized his nation. And and when I look at some of his videos, they just seem perfectly staged for his purpose. He is extraordinary. And, And who would have predicted it? I certainly wouldn't. I mean, this is someone who'd been a comic who had won the Ukrainian equivalent of Strictly Come Dancing as a dance competition and whose popularity ratings were something like 25% when the war started. And I think, again, probably Putin and, and his close advisors simply thought this man is negligible. He won't do anything. He's, he's, you know, he's just a comedian. And, and Zelensky has been extraordinary. I mean, he's risen to the occasion. He has inspired, I think, a, a resistance. There was going to be a resistance anyway, but I think he's helped to inspire a widespread 
and deep resistance. And I think it must be really galling for Putin because Putin's always made such a thing, you know, all those bare shirt pictures and wrestling with tigers and whatever he claims to have done. And here is Putin now looking at this really vivid, energetic younger man who is doing so well and who's such a good communicator. And Putin sits, you know, at the end of that absurdly long table looking really like a sort of isolated old man. And I think that must annoy Putin. Um, you know, he, he completely underestimated Zelensky, but then a lot of people did. Yeah. So how much sort of turns on, I don't know, the, a great man theory of history, how much turns on the fact that he rose to this occasion in such a dramatic way? Well, I think it really does matter sometimes who's in power. And of course, what matters is what power they have, what they're in control of, what resources they have. All that matters. It matters how many tanks you have, how many planes you have, how many guns you have, and so on. But someone has to give the orders, and someone actually has to inspire people and has to speak for people. And I think Zelensky has done that. I think he's he's a master communicator, and he's speaking, of course, not just to Ukrainians, but he's trying to speak to the Russians, and he's speaking to the international opinion. And he reminds me, in some ways, I mean, the comparison's been made by others, of Winston Churchill, who nobody wanted around much in peacetime. A lot of his fellow politicians didn't trust him. But when the Second World War started, they, even those who'd opposed him, thought, you know, he is the only person who can do the job. And so I really do think sometimes it matters. And I think if you had someone else in office in Russia, we might not have had the war. I mean, I would call this Putin's war. I, I don't have a sense of why now. I think, yes, I think it's interesting. I think partly because he thought it would be easy, um, partly because he'd managed to, I think, clear it with the Chinese, and so it looked like a good time. He thought Biden was a weak president, um, and I think that view was probably enhanced by the way the Americans got out of Afghanistan, which did leave the impression of, of a power that wasn't terribly competent and didn't know what it was doing. And so I think he simply thought that this would be a good time to do it. And I think he is worried. He always has been worried about Ukraine, Ukrainians looking to the West. And Ukraine had made it very clear that it wanted to join the European Union. And this is not something that, that Putin wanted. And so I think it's something that has been brewing for a time. I mean, he seized Crimea in 2014. He, he caused the, those two republics in the Donbass to, to break away. But that was never enough. And so I think he simply thought it was a good time. Speaking of rising to the occasion, what about Biden? I mean, a lot of people were dismissing him as well. He's, he seems to be on it. Well, he does. And I think what we, we underestimate with Biden, I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's had his problems. He has a deeply divided Congress. Um, you know, the Republicans, except on this war, have been, have been pretty much blocking most of what he wants to do. But I think we should remember that he is still, as president, someone who possesses a great deal of power. And he is, in my view, an old-fashioned liberal. He stands up for liberal values. Um, and I think that's come out very much. I mean, he, he has managed to express, you know, I mean, small L liberal values. He's managed to express the, the repulsion that many people feel to this unprovoked aggression on Ukraine. And I think he has been effective, and he's managed to bring the Europeans with him. Um, I think the Europeans themselves are also realizing that they don't want an increasingly powerful and, and malignant uh, Russia on their borders. So how does this end? I don't know, Libby. I wish I knew. Um, you know, I think it may end if you get some sort of international agreement, some sort of international guarantee. Um, it would be good if the Chinese could be part of that, because if there's one country that Russia listens to, it's China. Um, although, of course, what this war has done 
is leave China in a very much stronger position in the relationship with Russia, um, which presumably is not what Putin intended. But how will it end? I don't know. Um, there'll have to be, I suppose, some face-saving arrangement so that Russia doesn't have to accept that it actually was defeated. But I don't think there's going to be an end to the bitterness and hostilities anytime soon. I mean, if you were Ukrainian, particularly if you'd had family members killed or you'd had to flee from your house, or if you are unfortunate enough now to be living or, or will in the future be living under Russian rule, I don't think you're going to, a lot of people aren't going to forgive that. And so I think the Russians are going to find that even if they take part of Ukraine, they're going to have to have an awful lot of troops there to hold it down because they do not have now any more chance of, of persuading Ukrainians that Russian rule is benevolent. Margaret McMillan, thank you so much for that. Well, a pleasure is always to talk, to talk to you, Libby, but I just wish it was on a happier subject. That was Margaret McMillan, Emeritus Professor at the University of Toronto and the University of Oxford. Her most recent book is War, How Conflict Shaped Us. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a little-known chapter in Leonard Cohen's life. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. It's well known that Leonard Cohen's classic, Who by Fire, is based on a Hebrew prayer recited on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Mati Friedman's book by that name tells the little-known story of Leonard Cohen's concert tour to the front lines of the Yom Kippur War in October 1973. He was 39, famous, unhappy, and at a creative dead end. I talked with the author about the iconic poet and singer's wartime tour of the Sinai Desert. I grew up on Leonard Cohen, of course, like many Canadians. It was really my parents' music. Uh, that music was just always, always playing. I don't even remember when I heard it for the first time. I moved to Israel from Toronto when I was 17 and didn't think too much about Leonard Cohen for, for a couple of years. And then I found a, a news article that seemed to explain at least partly what was going on. And the article was about this very strange concert tour that had happened in 1973 at the height of the Yom Kippur War, which is maybe the darkest moment in Israel's history. Uh, Leonard Cohen had somehow showed up at the front uh, the Egyptian front in the Sinai Desert in the Yom Kippur War and had given a series of concerts for soldiers. And Israelis had never forgotten that Cohen did that. And yet nothing had really been written about it. And to the best of my knowledge, Cohen had really never mentioned it. Leonard Cohen grew up Jewish in Montreal. His father was president of the synagogue. I think his grandfather, a very learned rabbi, was it the connection? Leonard Cohen grew up just immersed in Jewish culture and in Hebrew and in the language of the Bible. And of course, anyone who knows Cohen's music understands that, you know, his, his poetry and his songs are full of biblical allusions. And that really comes from his, from his childhood and in the synagogue. And he was always kind of very open about, about being Jewish and about his kind of tribal allegiance. And when the Jewish people found itself in an existential crisis, when the state of Israel found itself in an existential crisis in 1973, he felt that he had to be there to be part of it, although it's unclear exactly how he thought he was going to help. It seems that he ended up 
on the front lines um and dare I say, like so many other things in his life, because uh, there was uh, a, a very attractive young woman that he met in a cafe. <laughs> so he shows up in Israel, but he doesn't know what he's going to do. It, it appears that he did not intend to play concerts at the front. He actually tells people that he wants to volunteer on a keyboard to pick oranges or you know, <laughs> harvest wheat while the men served in the front. And yeah. um, that seems to have been his plan to the extent that he had a plan. And he was sitting in a cafe in Tel Aviv when he was recognized by two Israeli musicians, actually quite famous uh, Israeli musicians who happened to be in the same cafe. Israel is a small country and it was even smaller at the time. And there were two Bohemian cafes where you could meet all of the famous people. And he sat in one of them and, um, and these two artists, Oshik Levy, a famous singer, and Ilana Rovina, who's the woman you're referring to, who's a, a singer and an actress, and they recognize him. They say, that's Leonard Cohen, and they can hardly believe it, and they walk over to Cohen and convince him to come with them to play for troops. And they say, we're going off to the front to uh, you know, raise morale and entertain the soldiers, and you, and you must come with us. <laughs> and at first, at first he says, no, and they, they kind of wear him down, and uh, they end up piling him into a Ford Falcon and setting off to, to find the war. One of the things that I found interesting in your book is that you also tell it from the point of view of people who saw him, who were in those audiences. What made this tour so amazing was that it was happening in the middle of a war and that the people who came to see Cohen at these shows were facing death after the show and Cohen plays for them knowing that he might be the last thing that they hear. So the audience is as important to this story as the artist. And I spent a long time tracking down people who'd encountered Cohen in the Sinai desert, seen him at the front, people who were impacted by that kind of brief meeting with Leonard Cohen in the war and never forgot it. It also is an opportunity to see the Yom Kippur War, which is a very important moment for Israel, very traumatic moment, a moment that, that changes the country and its culture. It's an opportunity to see that moment in a new light by looking at it, not through stories of generals and, you know, and battles, but through the story of strange musical concerts that happened at the front. What do you take away from all this? So it's not a biography of Cohen by any means. It's really about this one month, October 1973. It's very tightly focused, but I think if we understand what happened in that month. We actually get a lot about about Cohen and where he came from and where he was going and how his mind worked and how he took this tragedy that he'd witnessed and made it into art that, you know, will, I don't know if it'll live forever, but it'll certainly live for, for a very long time. Marty Friedman, thanks a lot. Very interesting conversation. Thanks so much for having me. That was Marty Friedman, author of Who by Fire. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.